Uh, it's been four years, almost to the day, since uh, Jennifer and I gathered up the courage to say out loud, I think God is calling us to start a church, to plant a new church. Now, you might imagine there were, there were many fears and insecurities and uncertainties that came along with that, but there was also a question that I knew had to be answered. Do we really need another church, a new church in Jackson, Mississippi? Don't we have enough churches here already? Isn't everybody here already a Christian? And even if not, why wouldn't we just try to strengthen the existing churches, the ones we already have? Why create new ones that just serve to flood the market? Right? I mean, wouldn't a new church just create competition between us and the rest? Now, that is a valid question if the church exists to run religious programs. In that case, we do have to view people as customers and we're all competing for everyone's business. But our conviction was, and still is, that the church exists to glorify God by making disciples. And in that case, we actually need more churches making more disciples. We don't need fewer. The status quo for us is not enough. And so I, if we put this into practice, you know, I've got a friend named Steve G. Steve actually came and preached here a few months ago. He is launching a new church called Redemption Church, actually next Sunday over in Livingston and Gluckstadt, right across the highway. Now, how are we supposed to think about that? Should we be nervous? Should we say, well, gosh, I hope Redemption Church isn't cooler than Harvest Church. I hope Steve's not a better preacher than me because they might cut into our market share. No, we, we celebrate. We we pray for them, we encourage them and support them, we partner with them in every way that we can because we're on the same team, we're aiming for the same goal, we're not competitors. We exist to complement one another for the sake of God's greater mission, not just in this community, but in the world. We're all here for the same purpose. And therefore we can celebrate what each church adds to the equation. Harvest Church, by God's grace, will make a dent. But that's all we're ever going to do. We're not going to be the church for everybody. We don't have to be. We get to complement, hopefully, the work of God in this community and beyond. And that's a wonderful gift. So once we became content with that answer, that we felt the conviction to make disciples, not just to be another church on the corner, then we had to answer the most important question of all, what are we going to name the church? (laughs) And that was a fun conversation that Jennifer and I had. It actually took quite a while to figure it out. What are we going to name the church? We wanted to name the church something that reflected what we are and what our vision was. And we just kept coming back, honestly, to John chapter 4. And so John 4 is, uh, this is a text, a scripture that we've preached multiple times and we'll continue, I'm sure, to preach it at least once a year because it serves for us as an anchor. This is why we're here. This is why we exist. John chapter 4, this wonderful story of Jesus encountering a woman at a well. Uh, I'm going to recap here what we talked about last week. We looked at basically the first half of the chapter last week, that Jesus and his disciples are passing through a region called Samaria. It was a dreaded place for self-respecting Jews because the Samaritans were lower on the ladder racially, culturally, socially, religiously, morally. In every way, the Jews tended to look down on the Samaritans, and so you didn't pass through Samaria if you didn't have to. But they're walking through Samaria, and they stop around lunchtime right outside of a town. The disciples run into town to try to buy some food, and Jesus reclines all by himself there at the well. 
right outside of the town. Well, then a woman walks up to the well all by herself, and she's there to draw water. Jesus asks her for a drink. Now, the woman is stunned because Jesus is violating all sorts of unwritten rules here. He's a man speaking to a woman. He's a Jew speaking with a Samaritan. We find out that he's a very upstanding religious leader, of course, and she's an immoral person. And so there's no way that a self-respecting Jew would have an encounter, a, a, a conversation with a woman like this. But it wasn't just conversation. They weren't debating Lane Kiffin versus Mike Leach, okay? What they were doing at the well, Jesus encountered this woman for a greater purpose. He actually offers her salvation. He's not looking for a drink. He's offering her what he calls living water. And this woman says, she says, oh, well, when, when the Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, he'll reveal all these things to us. And Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. It's an amazing story. But the story's only half over. And really, the, the lesson, the application is what comes next. And it's always been a true encouragement and a challenge to me. And that's why I want to share it today. Here's, here's what we're going to talk about in the latter part of John chapter 4. That Jesus comes into the world to save sinners. We all know that. If you've been to Harvest Church, we say that every week. But, but beyond our salvation, Jesus also calls us to something great, to something eternally significant. Jesus says, I'm going to bring you in on my mission for the world. If we are his followers, then we are also his partners. We labor in ministry the work that he's given us to do. And we see this picture show up. In John chapter 4, look at verse 27. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. And yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? They weren't willing to challenge him on it. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men there, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So the woman has run back into town to spread the news. I want you to come see a man who somehow knows everything about me. Could this be the Christ? And what we know is that presumably a large number of the people of her town are intrigued enough that they're willing to drop what they're doing and come to the well to see for themselves. Well, meanwhile, the disciples have returned with lunch. And they know that Jesus is famished, it's the middle of the day, and they're trying to shove food into his face. But Jesus isn't hungry. He's already full, he's already eaten, in a sense. Because he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Now, this was often the case with the disciples. They did not understand the spiritual dimension of what Jesus was trying to tell them. They're, th they're, still, they're thinking about food. They're thinking somebody snuck Jesus a Lunchable while we were away, and they can't figure out why isn't he hungry. 
But we get to see it. We get to read over John's shoulder, as it were, and we get to, to recognize, at least in this moment, something that in that moment they didn't see. And what we read right here, y'all, it ought to stir our hearts. We should not be left unmoved by what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Uh, we know what food is and what food accomplishes, right? Food is necessary for life. Food is what fills us and sustains us. It, it's what gives us energy. And therefore, food is essential. It's not optional. And so when Jesus says, my food is to do the will of the Father, what he's saying is the thing that fills me and sustains me and energizes me is doing God's will. The essential thing for me is to accomplish the Father's work. Jesus is giving us insight here into the whole reason he came. His essential reason for being uh, on the earth in the first place. Right? To accomplish the work and the will of God. So we have to start asking the question, okay, well, what does he mean when he says, I'm here to do the work and the will of the Father? Why is that so essential to him? Well, what he's doing, the will and work of God, it's not meant to be obscure. He's not talking about something else. Jesus is talking about the thing he's just been doing in the conversation with the woman at the well. This is the very thing he was just doing. Jesus came to give life to those who were spiritually dead. He came to give living water so that we would drink it and never thirst again. That's the will and the work that he's talking about. Jesus said it elsewhere in Luke chapter 19 in conversation with Zacchaeus. Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. One chapter before this one today in John chapter 3, in conversation with a man named Nicodemus, Jesus says, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Uh, Paul says it this way to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. This is a trustworthy statement which deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's his necessary food. Jesus says, that is what fills me, sustains me, energizes me. That's the one thing I need to do beyond anything else. That's why I'm here. Now, you've probably heard this before, this message of salvation, right? And this is Jesus's purpose. But I want you to think about how disarming this would have been to the disciples, at least here in this moment. Perhaps they had an idea that this is why Jesus came, to seek and save the lost. But here in Samaria, you, you have to know that these Jewish men just had the heebie-jeebies that they, were, they had to be in Samaria in the first place. This is a place that they were surely ready to get on through to the other side, right? They did not want to be in Samaria any longer than they had to be because they looked down on these people. These people weren't worth God's love and grace and mercy and kindness. That was the perception of the Jews. And yet Jesus has them in Samaria on purpose in an effort to show them why he came. Jesus didn't come just to save the right kind of people, the good, the upstanding, the moral, the diligently religious. No, Jesus is trying to communicate here. I came to save people just like her, that woman that you were astonished to see me speaking with. She's precisely the kind of person I came to save. I came to save the have-nots, the immoral, the cast-offs, 
those at the bottom of the ladder, the lowly, the outsider, you name it, Jesus says, I came for everybody, including these right here. And so Jesus is giving them insight into his purpose. This is why I'm here. This, this woman, I, and we, we spoke at length about this last week, but this woman, she's about as low down on the ladder as a person can be, socially, morally, religiously. Uh, even within her own context, her own people, she would have been cast out as a woman who had had five husbands and was living with a man she wasn't married to. That was in, a, in a, what was called an honor and shame culture. She would have been shamed at every turn. But Jesus is trying to show us something here, not just the disciples, but you and me too. He's saying, listen, there's nobody so low down on the ladder that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. Jesus says, I'll go as low as it has to go. I'll go as low as it takes, as low as I have to go to seek and save the lost. So why wasn't Jesus hungry? Because he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about, that you can't see. My food is to accomplish the work of God, to seek and save the lost. And y'all, here's, here's what's wonderful. Um, if any of us in this room are Christians, it's because Jesus Christ sought you and saved you just the same. No matter where you esteem yourself to be on the ladder, high or low, we're just like this woman, lost but now found, dead but now made alive, because Jesus sought and saved you and me. This is what it is to be a Christian. And so we share her story in more ways than we probably realize. Okay, so what we have is pretty amazing. Jesus expressing to us his necessary food, his purpose for being here, why he came. Pretty awesome, but he's not done. And, and really what to me is even more amazing, we probably knew that already about Jesus. But what Jesus does next, he takes his own mission and he brings his disciples in on it. That's what we see in, in verse 35. Jesus turns now to his disciples. He's expressed to them his purpose. But now look how he turns the table. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Anybody can look at a field in January and see there's nothing going on out there, at least nothing that we can see above the surface. The harvest is still a long way off, right? Anybody can see that. But behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Clearly, Jesus is talking about something different, not agriculture, but something spiritual, something that the disciples, again, something they can't readily see and take in, but Jesus is trying to help them to recognize the harvest is here, he says. Now, what's the harvest? Jesus has a way of switching up metaphors on us. I mean, he just does that on a whim. It feels like it was living water, then it was food, and now it's agriculture. Jesus is allowed to do that, okay? Um, now he's talking about something called the harvest. What is that? Well, it's a metaphor. It's a picture of the people that are going to come to faith in him and be saved. That's the harvest. It's the ingathering of people who will be saved by the grace of God. Now, remember what's happening outside of this conversation, Jesus talking with his disciples, but in the meantime, something else is going on. Where's the woman? Remember she left her water pot and ran into town 
With great urgency, she gathered a crowd and said, Come see a man who's told me everything. Is this the Christ? And a great many, apparently, a great many people are now joining her to walk outside of town and come to the well to see Jesus. And so when Jesus says to the disciples, Lift up your eyes and look on the field. It's white for harvest. Almost certainly, Jesus is pointing them back toward the town where at that very moment, a host of people are walking in their direction. Jesus is pointing them to the harvest. He's trying to help them to see. He's not talking about something figurative here. He's saying, look, here they come. These are the people I came to save, and now you get to participate. And we see that in verse 36. What does it mean to participate? He says, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Meaning other people have come before you to till the soil, to plant the seed. You're going to reap a lot of things that you didn't have to sow, right? But what, what's Jesus doing now? He's, he's, ta- he's giving us the picture of a harvest. But rather than talking of his sowing, which is certainly the case, he, he talks about his disciples as the sowers and the reapers, as those who will plant and those who will bring the harvest in. And very simply, Jesus is not trying to confuse us here. He's, t- he's simply saying, To sow, to plant, means to share the gospel, to point people to Jesus and what it means to be saved. And then to reap is the joy of seeing some of those people receive Christ by faith and become Christians. To point people to Jesus and then to see them become Christians, to sow and to reap. And he tells us that the sower and the reaper are not always the same person, but they will rejoice together. They will rejoice together. The sower will not envy the reaper or vice versa because of what the harvest is, because the harvest is the grace of God saving sinners. Those who receive Jesus by faith, they are the harvest. And therefore, whether you sow the seed and never experience the joy of seeing that person come to faith, you will yet rejoice in the outcome Because God's grace to save sinners, that's the goal. The the emphasis is not on those who sow and reap. The emphasis is on the harvest that God produces. Now, this this is an amazing picture, and it's easy for me to overlook it. It's a neat picture. I'm grateful for it. But it's easy for a person like me, and maybe for you, not really to see how it intersects with our lives. Whenever Jesus says things that appear kind of otherworldly and spiritual, we may not see the concrete realities in the application, but Jesus is, is intending for us to see that this is not just for the disciples. It's not just for the pastors and the missionaries. This is for all of us. And I want to show you how. Just two, two quick things here. When Jesus talks about us as sowers and reapers, he's actually making us partners in ministry with him. Jesus is saying, the mission that I came to achieve in the world you actually get to be a part of that. Uh, I, if, you've, if you're a parent with young children, if you've ever had young children, you know there are certain things your little kids want to do, but they just can't. They can't handle sharp kitchen knives. They can't, you can't entrust them with power tools, right? 
they just can't do it because they lack the strength and the coordination and the wisdom to do it. And so we keep those things hidden. We keep them on high shelves. We keep them locked up because we don't want our kids touching the dangerous stuff, right? It's off limits. Now, wouldn't it make sense that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would keep the most important thing he came to do off limits from us? That that Jesus would say, listen, I'll do the sowing and the reaping. I'll share the good news with people. You guys go, you know, go go organize church softball team or something, okay? Go, you guys go do some administrative stuff to stay busy. I'll do the heavy lifting here because I'm Jesus. But that's not how the scripture unfolds. That's not what we see. We see Jesus taking his necessary food, his ultimate mission, and bringing us in on it, letting us participate. He says, you will sow and you will reap. Uh, Later on, when Jesus ascends to the Father, Matthew 28, after his death and resurrection, he says to his disciples, and by extension to us, he says, go and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them and teach them to observe everything I've commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of the age. Y'all, we call that the Great Commission. And we call it that on purpose. The Great co Mission. It is a shared mission, something that Jesus Christ entrusts to us that we now get to be a part of. Now, of course, we're not the ones who are doing the saving. You can't save anybody, and I can't either. Only Jesus can do that, but he gives us the, the, the job, the responsibility, the privilege of sharing, of sowing, and he gives us the promise of reaping and all the joy that comes with that also. Y'all, God didn't have to do it like this. If God wanted to communicate with purity his gospel message, the good news of his salvation, he could have chosen to do it exclusively through dreams and visions and angels to make sure that the message remained pure. He didn't have to entrust it to people like you and me, but that's what he does. Almost exclusively God uses us as his messengers, his evangelists, his ambassadors in the world. That's the way he set it up. He uses us as those who sow and reap. And then secondly, we we see where the sowers and the reapers come from. Where where are the people supposed to come from who are going to do this great work? And Jesus explains, we're actually coming from the harvest itself. Now, this this may seem like very much common sense. But when Jesus Christ saves a person, it's, it's called the harvest. He's bringing them in as the fruit of his grace and salvation. But then Jesus delights to take us and then send us right back out into that same harvest to make his grace known to others. So he brings you in by his grace, but then he sends you right back out for the sake of his grace and his mission, right? Now we have maybe this mentality, a lot of times in the church we have the mentality that this is the pastor's exclusive job, that the pastor's the one who's been trained and equipped and established to sow and reap. Or maybe, you know, we send missionaries across the world to do that kind of stuff. And that's true. But Jesus is not giving an exclusive right to sowing and reaping. He's not giving the message to the disciples to say, listen, you guys are elite squad here. You're going to go out and do the work that no one else can do. No, Jesus is making a greater point than that. It's not about uh, attaining to a certain rung of the ladder spiritually then you're qualified. No, Jesus is saying everyone who is of the harvest 
is now sent back out into the harvest. This is the privilege that we all get to play a part in. We are called to enter in. He brings us in. He sends us back out. And that's why I love the way this story unfolds. Do you notice the lesson? The lesson is for the disciples. Jesus is talking to them. Peter, James, and John, and the rest. But the application, at least in this story, the application is being carried out by whom? It's the woman from the well. She didn't get the lesson, but she sure is living out the application. She's the one doing it. It's the Samaritan woman who went back into town and pleaded with her townspeople, her neighbors, come see this man. Could this be the Christ? This is a person. She is leading her neighbors to Jesus. Quite literally, she's leading them to Christ. She's the application here. She's the hero in that regard. And look at the outcome. Look what happens. Verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, well, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Isn't that awesome? You know, whenever, whenever we talk about sharing our faith with others... Uh, maybe you're like me. You get a lump in your throat. You get really nervous. Uh, I start to feel very insecure. Maybe you feel like I don't know enough. Uh, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to appear to be judgmental. I don't want to come across as a hypocrite. I'm afraid of being rejected and making you know made to look like a fool. I'm afraid of losing a relationship in the process. Yeah, and those those are all valid feelings, okay? Um, but they're not excuses. None of those reasons is reason enough to keep our mouth shut. And, and, I, and my, my hope and prayer, of course, is that we would actually take great courage from a story like this. Because we're, what, we're, what we're talking about in terms of, do I have the courage? Do I have the kind of testimony and credibility you know, to come across as, as, as uh, you know, sincere and not a hypocrite? You know, am I, am I going to be rejected if I put myself out there? All those questions that we tend to ask ourselves, this woman right here could have asked them far more. She had far more reason to keep her mouth shut than we do. She was at the bottom of the ladder, immoral. She was probably, surely, uneducated. She was a cast out. And yet, this kind of person, we might look at her and say, she can't be a credible witness for Jesus. She doesn't know anything. She, she doesn't know how to, to explain the deep truths of the Bible. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't know how to work a PowerPoint presentation. How is she going to communicate truth to these people? And yet she's our hero. She's doing the thing that Jesus is commanding us all to do. She didn't know much, right? She didn't know much. But what she knew, what she had, what she'd experienced, she took back into town and she beckoned everyone Come see this man for yourself. And because she did it, because she pointed them to Christ, a great many of her neighbors received life in his name. There was nothing impressive about her, nothing persuasive about her presentation. There was nothing about her that produced this salvation. 
She was simply taking who she had met, what she had experienced and received, and she was now sharing it with others that they might know it for themselves. That's why they say, listen, thank you for your testimony there at the end, but we don't need your word anymore. We've come to know him for ourselves. And isn't that the goal for all of us? Nobody has faith in you or me. That's not the point. The point is to point them to Christ, that they might know him for themselves. Our testimony helps, but ultimately we're trying to bring them to Jesus, that they might know him. And so here's the question that I return to, and I return to this every time I preach this scripture or read it on my own, and it hurts just as much today as it ever has. Does my evangelistic fire burn as brightly as hers did? The question is not, do I know more Bible than she knew? I feel certain that I do. She didn't even have a New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. We know more Bible than her. Do I have a better moral reputation than her? Yeah, I do. That's not the question. The question is, does my heart to share the grace of Jesus with others burn as brightly as hers? And if not, why not? Because again, I said this a moment ago, our story is hers and hers is ours. No matter where you think you are on the ladder, high or low, the truth for her is the same truth for us, that we were dead in our sins and we've been made alive by God's grace. That we were lost and far from God, but we've been reconciled and brought near by the blood of Christ. Because Jesus died on the cross We have been made children of God. That was true for this woman in the very same way it's true for you and me by faith. And that means that just like her, we've been brought in as harvest fruit. We're part of the same gracious crop that this woman is. And that also means that just like her, we've been sent back out to sow and to reap and to rejoice in it. Does my heart reflect that? Y'all, I like the lesson a lot more than I like the application. I like the lesson given to the disciples. I love to nod my head and amen. I don't always enjoy the necessary courage and initiative that it takes to go out and to do it. If that's true for me, I suspect a lot of us know what that is. It's hard, and we make all manner of excuses. Jesus says, no, what you've received, you get the privilege to go and share. It's not just a duty, it's a joy. So when we met the very first time upstairs, right there, May the 7th, 2017, I preached this same scripture, and at the risk of being lazy, I'm just going to quote to you guys something I said on that day when I concluded that sermon. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want you to know nothing has changed. And forevermore, as long as you and I draw breath, it's not going to change. This is what God's called us to be. And so I'm going to tell you now what I told you then. Some of y'all were here. Uh, You remember Mason coming up and giving me a hug during the sermon and then walking back behind me and stepping on a cockroach. Y'all remember that? Some of y'all were there. We're way more formal now than we were then, okay? (laughs) Uh, Here's what I said, and by God's grace, here's what we are. 
If Harvest Church ever amounts to anything, if we ever become a, a healthy and growing and vibrant church, it will depend on this. The Holy Spirit of God putting in us a burning heart to see His mission fulfilled. It's not enough for us to be knowledgeable about the Bible. It's not enough for us to have good moral reputations. Those things are wonderful, but they're not enough. In that case, all we'll ever be is a nice church on the corner. God has called us to be a people who joyfully sow and reap together. The abundant life that we have received is now meant to propel us outward into a life of great fruitfulness. Harvest Church is not just a name we happen to like. It's our mission. It's our vision. It's our purpose wrapped up in a single word. Lift up your eyes, Jesus says, and look that the fields are ripe and they are ready for harvest. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you that by faith alone, without any ladder climbing on our part, without any merit, without any good intentions, nothing that we can bring to the table, you save us as a gift of grace. You bring us in as a harvest of righteousness granted to us free through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord, before we get to anything else, would you bring this home to our hearts that we have received you and that we delight in you, that you have made us your children, no longer dead but alive, no longer lost but reconciled. And Lord, if that is true of us, then make it all the more urgent and necessary that we see ourselves as sowers and reapers too, that one does not exist without the other. Father, would you put it in our hearts this morning to say as we, as those who have received this wonderful grace, we now have the responsibility, the privilege, the joy of taking it outward, of entering back into the harvest to plant, to point others to you. And if, Lord, if you so give us this grace, we'll actually reap and see it come to fruit as well. Father, will you encourage us this morning that we would see our lives as, as greater than just the sum of our parts that we are that we, we do so many things, we have so many priorities, and most of them are quite good, but that our necessary food, that our reason for being, would be what we've read today. To be sent out to make known the grace of Jesus. That others might know Him the way we do. Lord, humble us, um, encourage us, strengthen us, 
This is not something we can do in our own strength. This is not something, Lord, that we have enough intellect uh, to, to produce. We, we, we can't do this unless your spirit within us fills and strengthens and energizes, unless you, unless you, Lord, give us words to speak, unless you do the work in the hearts of others, Lord, to produce saving faith. Lord, we can't do that. But Father, I do pray that we would repent, that you would forgive us where we have um, bypassed this, uh, this calling where maybe we've just ignored it or, or maybe we just didn't know. Um, Father, show us today that we are here um, to carry on the great work, Lord, that you passed on to us. The great co-mission. Lord, show us that, uh, that there is no greater purpose, no greater joy, no greater um, blessing than to be a part of this work with you for your glory forever. Lord, make it that our lives, our short lives, would count uh, to this end. And we ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen.